Well, take your Bibles and open them to the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. As you're turning there, I need to talk to you very briefly and do some confessing. Because when we began this study, my wife said to me, um, do you really think you're going to do that in two weeks? I said, oh yeah, easy, not a problem. And then last week when I said it's going to take us three, she said, do you really think you're going to get both of his final two sermons, Haggai's final two sermons in next week? I said, oh yeah, that'll be easy. It wasn't easy and I'm not going to be able to do that. (laughs) So we're going to extend this into next week and all I can tell you is once again I'm amazed at God's providence because next week's final sermon in Haggai, his fourth of his four sermons, is actually a Christmas prophecy and it's going to be a wonderful time to combine finishing up this wonderful book as well as looking ahead at our Sunday before Easter at the coming of our Lord. But for our time now, we're going to look at Haggai's third summer. We're in a series called Recalibrating Our Priorities. This is a a theme that runs throughout the book of Haggai, which is one of my favorite books in all the Bible, and I've got to confess, even after studying it now, it's only grown in my affection for it. Haggai chapter 2, I'm going to read his third of four sermons. It's only two chapters, this book is, but there are four sermons. One sermon in chapter 1, three sermons in the second chapter. We're in that third sermon today, and it begins in chapter 2, verse 10, and goes through verse 19. Haggai 2, verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooks food, or wine, or oil, or any other food, Will it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any one of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. But now, do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20 I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind and mildew and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig, fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree? It has not borne fruit yet. 
From this day on, I will bless you. I've mentioned to you before that on my high school wrestling team was one of my teammates who had a strange ritual. Before every one of his matches, he would go through this entire kind of ritual that I began to be more and more intrigued by, especially after I gave my life to Christ. Began watching what he did before these matches. Before each match, our coach would get us together and have a kind of a pep talk and get us ready to go out and have a wrestling match with the other team. And after that, it was personal time. Some of us would go get ankles taped or knees taped or or things bandaged up or uh, get our headgear adjusted. But this guy always did the same thing. He went over in the corner and he would take a small Bible out of his gym bag. And then he would begin rubbing the Bible on his arms, on his chest, his legs, down on his feet and on his shoes. And finally, he would rub it on his head and kiss it and put it back in his gym bag. He explained to us that he was trying to get the power of God for his wrestling match. Now, what made it really complicated is he was really good. (laughs) And so I began to ask as a young believer, well, you know, maybe I should either borrow his Bible because it seems to be effective or get my own and this rubbing on your arms and legs might actually have something to it. Upon further reflection, though, his ritual really asked me to, or caused me to ask a series of questions that, that were super important. How can God's power be gained? How can God's power be, be transferred, transmitted? Strange as it may sound, this is the exact same question posed in this sermon I just read by Haggai. How can holiness be gained? How can sin be spread? Is it really touching something? Rubbing something on you? Is it casual? Is it intentional? Is sin contagious? Is holiness contagious? It might surprise you, unless you think about it very deeply, that Hollywood certainly thinks so. Not so much on the sinful side, they don't really care about whether that's contagious or not, but Hollywood, and probably based on old novels, certainly thinks that holiness can be transferred. Have you ever seen a, an old vampire movie where some guy holds up a cross and that's supposed to keep the, guy, the, the, the bad guy or the evil spirit or the vampire away? There's power in that little piece of metal or wood? Ever seen... Any movie that has holy water that's thrown on someone who is uh, controlled by evil and it starts melting and dissolving them because of its efficacy. A lot of this is rooted, frankly, in old, bad Catholic theology. It's rife with this. Still to this day, Catholicism holds to holy water that actually transmits grace and power by administering it to someone. There are holy relics that if you can not even get close to, or touch rather, but get close to, you can be endued with with this power that it has. I remember being in Köln, Germany, 
where supposedly, and I underline the word supposedly, the bones of the three wise men, we know there weren't necessarily three wise men, there were three gifts, but that's another time, are buried in this little sarcophagus there. And I was standing there just looking with a friend of mine and the, these, these kind of uh, zealots for that came up and said, don't you just feel the power here? And I just was probably not in a good mood that day and I said, no, I, I actually just feel really hot in here. To which one of them responded, that's it. <laughs> there was no air conditioning in that church. <laughs> There's sites that you can go to. Even the Scala Santa, one of the uh, most vivid memories of, of my, my travels was experienced with my wife. The Scala Santa, the holy steps are in Italy. They are a set of steps that upon his birthday, Constantine's mother, in, in the, just in the early in the fourth century, went to Israel, went to the Antonio Fortress where Pilate judged Jesus, actually removed part of the steps in that Antonio Fortress, brought those steps to Rome, built a, a, a facility around it so that people could go up those steps thinking, if you will go up these steps on your knees, saying a Hail Mary on each step, God will grant you power during the process and forgive your sin by the time you get to the top. I remember hearing this explained to us, reading about it, and looking over at my wife, just sobbing, grieved that these people thought that was the way to please God. How does holiness transmit? Can it transmit? How does sin transmit? Is it contagious? Strange questions, I know. But we all have certain ideas about this and these thoughts actually affect our faith more than you think. Let me catch us up a little bit on where we are in our mini-series on the book of Haggai and then we'll drop into Haggai's addressing of this exact issue in his third message. Haggai's message is important. His whole book is important for us today. It is so unique in the, in the minor prophets and very unique in the prophets in general. Remember we've said for a few weeks now, don't ever think the major prophets are the important ones and the minor prophets are the non-important ones. Major and minor is only a reference to their size. So you could actually reverse the kind of the priorities and say, well, if the minor prophets are major, like the major prophets, but are shorter, I can get a lot in a little, and you could dive into the minor prophets. I would encourage you to dive in to the minor prophets as you can. Haggai is different, though, from not only the other minor prophets, but from all the prophets in this. All of the other prophetical books contains God's criticism and rebuke of the nation of Israel or Judah. For sins like social injustice, idolatry, social uh, pains and, and uh, persecutions, superstitious worship, spiritual and physical adultery, violence, rejection of God's law at every level. But Haggai doesn't deal with any of those. He deals with obedience rooted in the heart. The sin he addresses is the sin of laziness, apathy, I don't care enough-ism. He addresses spiritual indifference, irresponsibility, procrastinating service, and worship of God. 
It's the sin of not caring enough about God and his standards in our lives to make any difference. Now again, we've done this for three weeks and we'll do it in an abbreviated sense now and next week. This is, it's important to know the context of Haggai's book, this prophet. The southern tribe of Judah was taken captive into Babylon in three deportations between 605 B.C. and 586 B.C. Remember, they should have learned because the northern ten tribes, which was called Israel, was taken by Assyria into captivity just a, a few hundred years earlier. They didn't learn their lesson. God warned them. God, God prophesied against them. If you don't repent of your idolatrous uh, leaning away from me, I'm going to come and judge you. Sure enough, in 605, he did. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, sent troops over, besieged Jerusalem, and took 10,000 of the choicest soldiers and craftsmen. But then in 9, 597, Jehoiakim, the king of Israel, was taken prisoner as well. Nebuchadnezzar left a puppet king, one he could control, uh, who was Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah. And after 11 years of ruling in 586, he had had enough. Zedekiah rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. That infuriated Nebuchadnezzar. He then sent the full destructive force of his army. And not only did he take most of Israel captive in this deportation, he did something very important. He leveled the temple. He set it on fire and destroyed it, took it apart stone by stone and left it in rubble. Wasn't very long, however, until Nebuchadnezzar was conquered himself by Persia, another rising empire. Very significant point in world history, very significant point in biblical history because a hundred years earlier, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 45.1 that a baby would be born, grow up, become the king of Persia. His name would be Cyrus and he would come and conquer Babylon and set the people free from their captivity. Guess what? The Persian king was named Cyrus. And he made a decree in Ezra chapter 4 that indeed the Jews could go home. Daniel was actually reading the prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 25 verse 11. And in Daniel 9 we see him reflecting that he did the math and realized the 70 year captivity was over. This was year 70. And he prayed a wonderful prayer of repentance. So Cyrus the Persian king gives the decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem in 539 B.C. And again, Ezra 1, 1 to 4 records that decree. I think I said 4, it's 1, 1 to 4 records that decree. Well, just as the, the captivity had taken place in three deportations, Nebuchadnezzar went over three different times and brought people back, so the repopulation of the land would happen in three repopulation efforts. The first to go were the faithful remnant. They were under a leader named Zerubbabel, the governor, the construction leader. He was the civil leader. Why all the detail? Well, simply because the first group to return to Jerusalem was in response to God's word and in accordance with Cyrus's decree, and they had one primary task rebuild the temple first. It would show their priority, it would definitely recalibrate that. 
It would show their, their honor of God. It would also build a huge monument so that when the people came back to Israel, what would be the first thing they would see when they came over those mountains surrounding uh, Jerusalem and they saw the Temple Mount, they would see the temple completed and remember that Yahweh, their God, reigns. We pick up chapter one of Haggai with this group. The faithful remnant that comes back early to get everything ready by rebuilding the temple first. But the people, we find out here, had become sidetracked. As we open Haggai chapter one, it has been some eight, years since they came back to rebuild the temple but it wasn't finished you can imagine the scaffolding up rocks piled here and there the wind blowing brush across the temple mount the wind blowing cloths that were hung by the, the scaffolding and it was abandoned it was an abandoned work site And they saw it abandoned for 18 years, people walking by it day in and day out. Well, one question is, what had these people been doing for almost two decades? And with that, we come to Haggai. To kind of contemporize his message, he gives us in these four different sermons, four different messages, it's a four-step plan for recalibrating your priorities. And what he tells them is equally as applicable for them as it is us. A four-step plan for recalibrating your priorities. The first sermon in chapter 1 was evaluate your resources and time, which is exactly what Haggai calls the people to do. They'd been there for 18 years. They had been very, very busy, but not very busy doing what they were supposed to be doing, rebuilding the temple. They had been building, uh, building their own comfort. Chapter 1, verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not even come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. They were procrastinating, maybe later, not right now. Progress had ground to a halt. Ezra tells us in chapter 4 that they were afraid. Why had they stopped? Because they had begun to decorate and panel and, and look at the comfort of their own houses, which were complete and finished, fully stocked, fully paneled, which is another word for decorated, fixed up, and the temple had stayed unbuilt. But in a wonderful display of God's grace, he, he calls them out and gives them another chance He identifies the sin in the end of verse 9, verse 8 and verse 9. He says, go get supplies and rebuild the temple. I've already given you disastrous consequences for disobeying me because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own panel decorated house in verse 9. So we find out in verses 10 and 11, he'd sent a drought in the land. He had sent a time of of difficulty with the people. We see part of that in our own sermon now where they would go to get, you know, 50 uh, vials of wine and there would only be 20 and it was half of the produce that they thought they they were going to yield. So God tells them to repent. It's incredible. It it ends well. 
they actually obey and begin reconstruction of the temple. Wonderful ending. And oh, how we wish it finished in chapter 1. But chapter 2 comes. It's all a lesson about seek first his kingdom, as Jesus says, and God's righteousness and all the things you need and want will be added to you. Those that are truly needful in your life. God is promising them and God promised us through Jesus if we keep our focus and priority on him and his ministry, he will personally take care of our personal interests and needs. So wonderfully in verse 12, they obeyed God and showed reverence for the Lord and repented. It's good news. But then we come to a second sermon that Haggai has to report and, and here we find our second step in this four-step plan for recalibrating your priorities, reset your standards of comparison. Reset your standards of comparison. Let me just summarize. He asks a question in verse three. Who among you is left who saw this temple in its former glory? That's another way of asking. How many of you saw Solomon's temple, its former glory, when it was the greatest edifice that had ever been put together by human hands with more money put into that piece of real estate than had ever been spent on anything? It was glorious. The timber was amazing. It was overlaid with gold. All the implements were gold and silver. As the people begin to complete their temple, though, there's a problem. Remember, when Nebuchadnezzar came over, he stole all the temple implements. He stole the gold. He stole, stole the silver. He stole all the valuable uh, 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 things that he could melt down. And they're returning from being prisoners for 70 years. That They didn't have much. They pulled together what they had and they began building a temple. And then, I'm not picking anyone, but then <laughs> some of the senior citizens, probably do the math, between 80 and 95 years old, started to look at the reconstruction effort and said, wait just a minute. We remember the Solomonic temple. We remember Solomon's temple. And this is a shack. This is nothing. And that discouraged the rebuilding efforts and they started to stop again. If you're a senior citizen, encourage us. I guess I should say we should encourage y'all. It's a really sad thing that their influence, which should have been positive, was comparing and it was negative. But God said, listen, you're comparing this to Solomon. That's not what I'm doing. I'm comparing your effort to my command. If you're faithful, I don't, I don't care. He says, all the silver, all the gold is mine. I'm not measuring this in, in talents of silver and gold. I'm measuring this by your faithfulness to the task. So he says in verse four, take courage. Don't be discouraged. Restart. Verse 5, my spirit is abiding with you. And then he makes an incredible promise in verse 9. The latter glory of this house, the one you're building, the temple, will be greater than the former, than Solomon. Stop, I mean, stop the press. How can this meager attempt with just stones with no gold overlay all rebuilt, repurposed, chips in the stone, 
just repurposing what they had on the mount. How could this in any way be better than Solomon's? It shows us that God, God's standard of measurement and comparison is completely different than ours. Well, he tells us, in this place, verse 9, I will give peace. How? How? He never gave peace in Solomon's temple. Just look right after Solomon's death. There was civil war. Then the northern kingdom warred against, warred against Assyria, the southern taken by Babylon. There was no peace. In this temple, I will give peace. Why and how? Because the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would occupy this temple physically. This would be the temple that Jesus would cleanse with the scourge because of its abuse. This would be the temple that he would reference when he talked about his own resurrection. This would be the temple that would be abandoned where he would be abandoned by the religious leaders, thus committing himself to the cross for the redemption of sin. And this would be the temple that would see the veil that guarded the holy of holies from the rest of common people ripped from top to bottom, offering a way of salvation. This is a foreshadowing of the gospel. Through this temple, at this temple, he would establish peace. How do we know that's when it happened? Because 70 years after this happened, Jesus died. Just a few years, 30 years or so after this this temple died in 70 AD, AD 70, the, the, the temple was destroyed. So whatever happened to give peace in this temple would have to happen before AD 70 And it happened around 33 when Jesus died and established peace between God and man and ripped that veil in two from top to bottom saying the holy of holies is now accessible through Jesus. And he still offers that to you and to me. If you know the Lord, praise God. Praise God we have access to God the Father through Jesus. If you may be here and you don't know God as your Father and Jesus as your Savior, I wanna invite you, this is as beautifully presented to you and me as it was to Haggai and to the people in Jesus' day. He's offered a way to come to God by believing the good news that he died for the sins of those who believe he rose from the dead, took our penalty on himself and gave us his righteousness. But in verse five, Haggai says, do not fear, which tells us why they stopped reconstructing the temple. Why were they afraid? They were afraid of what their obedience would cost them. They probably would not be able to look at their houses anymore. They were afraid that it would cause them persecution, so they stopped. He promises them a great and glorious future in verse 9 through this temple. So they again, for at least the second time, restart construction efforts. Which brings us to the text for today, our third in this four-step plan for recalibrating your priorities. Evaluate your resources and time, reset your standards of comparison, and then today in this sermon, Haggai's third, consider the blessings of repentance. Consider, his favorite word, the blessings of repentance. Verse 10, chapter 2. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, if you do the math on the Jewish calendar, it's been a little more than two months since Haggai's second sermon, which was about two months since his first sermon. 
This happens in a very fast staccato delivery. There have been several starts, several stops to the reconstruction efforts. Each of these pauses represents abject disobedience on the part of the people to the command of God to rebuild his temple. And it was completely within God's purview and right to have wiped them out because they didn't. And he doesn't. He doesn't. The grace that drips from this passage is tangible. The heart of this third sermon is this. God has gracious patience and promises blessing to those who will see their sin and repent of it. In other words, you get another chance. You have another opportunity to obey. But God's message is equally clear at the same time that though their sin may be repented of, it is still serious and defiling and must be dealt with. In fact, this, the, this section is theologically critical for us to understand the nature of sin and righteousness. righteousness. Richard Taylor writes this. Perhaps more concisely than anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible, this sermon, Haggai's third sermon, makes the point that impurity is more pervasive and more easily contracted than is purity. End quote. This is a stunning revelation that the people needed to wake up to. Haggai's sermon begins then in verse 11 as the prophet once again quotes God, Yahweh. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests for a ruling. Talk to the priests, the pastors. Haggai pressed the people to query the priests. I want you guys to have a chat. Go ask your pastors this. It's a bit of a theological test for the pastors, the priests, but it was also a pragmatic test for their own living. Ask the theologians, the religious leaders, the pastors, a test question. And the subject was of ritual holiness and cleanliness, which was called clean in the Old Testament, in the ritual sense, while that which was unholy was called unclean. Those are familiar terms if you've read your Bible. Clean and unclean. Okay, here's the test, verse 10. Very interesting. If a man, it's almost a riddle, if a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, stop right there, what is holy meat? Very simple. You would go to the temple. They weren't sacrificing in the temple here right now. The temple wasn't complete, so they had set up some makeshift altar. They, they were still offering sacrifices. These people go and they offer a sacrifice. Once you had the animal butchered, you offered the sacrifice to the priest. He would burn part of it. The meat, he would send home with you. It was a way to have your meat butchered. So this man's coming home from a sacrifice. If a man carries holy meat, this is meat that had been acceptable to God in a sacrifice, in the fold of his garment, I just see this guy, he's got his toga on, and he's got this meat, he's got this meat rolled up in, in a cloth, and he rolls it up in his garment, he's holding it close to his midsection, and he's walking home, and that meat touches bread with the fold. Not even the meat, just where it is in his garment. Or cooked food. Whatever's on the table, the, the vegetables, the potatoes, the carrots, 
the wine, what you're drinking, the oil, what you would use to dip your pita bread in, or any other food, everything on the dinner table. Ask the priest this. Will the food that touches this holy food become holy? Is that the way holiness is transmitted? Do you rub a Bible on your arms? Do you stick a Bible in your car for good luck? Is this the way we transmit holiness? And the priests give an answer. No, that's not what happens. That's not the way you transmit holiness. And they were right. Not to be finished, God through Haggai asked them a second question. If one, now we move from food to the person. If a person, one who is unclean from a corpse, according to Deuteronomy, excuse me, Numbers chapter 5 and chapter 9, if you touch a corpse, you're unclean ceremonially for seven days, you can become clean again through sacrifice and washing. But if you have touched a corpse, you've helped bury someone, if anyone is unclean from a corpse and touches any of these, that's the food, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, guess what? It will. It will become unclean. They're asked to know the application of the ceremonial law. In other words, is it possible for a holy object to transfer holiness from the garment which it was wrapped in to something or someone else which it came in contact with? The answer was no. But the second question, well, what if something is unholy? What if someone has touched something, becomes ceremonially unclean, and they touch the food before anyone else does? Have they now tainted and stained not with disease, just with ceremonial uncleanliness, have they now tainted the dinner? And the answer is yes. Now, this is only an illustration we're going to find out in a moment. But it also demonstrates some very important principles. Apparently, the people have been going through the motions of bringing in their sacrifices and offerings during the time that they were neglecting the rebuilding of the temple. In short, their sin and disobedience had contaminated and nullified their efforts to be holy and to have these sacrifices acceptable. Here's the principle. Sin is contagious in a way that holiness and righteousness is not. Hosea 6.6, 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. I'm in... I care about your heart, not what you're doing on the outside unless that reflects your heart in the knowledge of God rather than burnt sacrifices. You know, to kind of wrap your mind around this, Alec Motyer gives a really good illustration. He says this with his paraphrase. If you touch something with a dirty hand, you'll leave a dirty mark. But if you touch something with a clean hand, you will not leave a clean mark. That's really helpful. That's exactly what he's saying here. Sin transmits differently. Sin defiles differently than does righteousness. Spreading sin is easy. Pursuing holiness is difficult and hard and takes effort. It's easy to spread sin. Just be passive and don't address it. But in order to spread righteousness, you have to be aggressive and pursue it. 
Now verse 14 makes Haggai's point. This was just an illustration. He comes to the point in verse 14. They must turn from their selfishness, decorating their own homes at the expense of the Lord's. They must get back to work and stop procrastinating and stop being afraid of what obedience would cost them and cause them and get back to work. Verse 14. Haggai says, okay, I gave you this, this test, this, this kind of illustration with the priest about, the, about cleanliness and uncleanliness, holiness and unholiness. Then Haggai said, so is this people. Ah, this is the point. That's just an illustrating, an illust- illustration is illustrating the heart of the people. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. In other words, you keep doing error after error and procrastination after procrastination and selfishness after selfishness and defilement after defilement and it just keeps spreading and perpetuating then you come to try to do something holy but your sin has spread even into your righteous efforts this is a profound principle defilement or sin or unholiness spreads its contagion it seamlessly spreads to the outworking in our lives and both secular and religious dimension sin has consequences immediate and eventual consequences and for a believer then and now one of the most debilitating hindrances to spiritual growth and maturity is misunderstanding how sin spreads and how holiness is pursued left to our own thinking our own intuition as Proverbs says our own understanding we will always concoct a way of pleasing God becoming righteous in his eyes in our own eyes based on things we can control and conjole by our own efforts talking to Saul God said this through the prophet Samuel 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Has the Lord much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he does obeying the voice of the Lord? That's quite a question. You're doing these external things, but your heart's not, not in it. Does God really have a heart in that? And then he answers it. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. We usually stop when we read that verse. Listen to what he says next. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. They had such allergy, rightly so, to divination, to, you know, seances and dealing with dead spirits and trying to do pagan practices. And people thought that was so pagan. Stay away from that. Samuel says, rebellion is the same as that. Having a rebellious heart is is the same as that outward working. Don't have a standard of righteousness higher than God's. You can't say this is bad, but this is not. He gives gives another illustration. And insubordination is as the iniquity and idolatry. Oh, they looked at idolatry and said, it's pagan, it's terrible. Who would do that? Such horrible people who would do that. And he says, actually, if you're insubordinate at work, if you're insubordinate to your parents, if you're disrespecting and disobeying at all, that's as equally culpable to God as idol worship. God was and is forever interested in our hearts. Going through the outward motions might fool people, but we'll never fool God. So Haggai says, listen, 
When you don't take care of your sin, it just invades your whole life. It spreads, it's contagious. Righteousness is not a superstitious thing you can spread. You don't hold up a cross to, to fend off bad spirits and you don't rub a Bible on you and you don't just think, well, I went to church on Sunday, I'm good for the week. Righteousness has to be pursued in every moment, in every decision, by the grace of God, with our sanctifying efforts. Haggai now gives a little history lesson in verse 15, shows how the people's sin had drawn the judgment of God on their lives and livelihoods. But now do consider from this day forward, before one stone was placed upon another in the temple of the Lord, let me tell you what was happening before you started reconstruction. From that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would only be 10. When one came to the wine to draw uh, 50 measures, there would only be 20 what is he saying? Now, you might say, well, they went to get this and got that. They went to get most and got little. They went to get 50 and got 20. Well, what's going on here? It's like half of what they expected. You don't have to wonder what he means because he explains it in verse 17. I smote you, stop right there. Stop, stop, stop right there. <laughs> Their produce was failing, their crops were failing. Their water supply was dwindling. Their wine was running out. Why? God says, I want you to know that I take the credit for all your suffering. What kind of God would say that? The God who understands that if I allow you to continue in disobedience, it will be tragic. But if I arrest your attention to make you return to me, even by famine, even by not having what you want and need, you'll return to me. Verse 17 says, so I smote you. Look at the object of that, the subject rather of that. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. In that last phrase, you have the question and the answer, the assessment and the solution, the problem to be solved right there. The Lord takes credit for their problems that they were experiencing because he says, I did that to wake you up. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. But I love the end of verse 17. Again, it shows the problem and the solution. It reminds me of Acts chapter three, verse 19. Therefore, repent and return so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent, return. How many times is God going to give them another chance? Well, we know at least one more here. What is he going to say now? Verse 18. Notice that the beginning and end of this verse is a bracketed command that we've already heard before. Consider. Do consider. Stop to think and plan and ponder. Consider from this day onward, the new day, a new fresh start. From the 24th day of the ninth month, he marks the day on the calendar. From the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, it looks like they've finished the foundation and are starting 
up their efforts again. Consider. See at the first and end of that verse where he says consider? It's the same thing as consider your ways in chapter one. Is the seed still in the barn, including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. You still have plants that could produce. What's God going to do with that? Look at the last phrase in verse 19. Yet from this day on, I will bless you, which is another way of him saying, based on the previous admonition, I will stop causing you to fail in your agricultural pursuits. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take my my withholding hand away and give you a sustaining hand. Why? Because you are obeying me. Verse 18, give careful thought to consider the ways of obedience. One of the besetting sins of the people there was to refuse to believe that God's future promises were any help in the present. We'll note this more next week, but most of the promises that God gives these people, they never saw the fulfillment of in their lifetime. It would be hundreds of years before they would be fulfilled. But that didn't stop those future promises from being current motivation. Haggai's sermon finishes on a high note, this third sermon does, because the people did turn from their sin. They obeyed the Lord. There are great days ahead. I'm going to bless you again removes his hand that was causing economic hardships and he promises a reversal of their suffering a granting of crops to these fledgling plants that they had set aside they could take comfort because they were repenting the message is simple disobedience to God will cause his blessings to be withheld disobedience to God will cause his blessings to be withheld. But obedience will cause his blessings to be discharged, released from heaven. I know what some of you are thinking, is that an absolute promise? It's a general principle, but God glorifies himself and blesses us in ways that he defines, not us. So that a a person who is martyred or dies for the faith, a person who has cancer and and dies in what they perceive to be not the best time, God says, my blessings will be after this life in forever and eternity, which will make this life but a blip in your memory. God's blessings don't look like our expectations. And when we start forcing God to answer our prayers the way we demand and defining his blessings the way that we want, we're missing the point of faith. A couple of things to kind of tuck in your heart as you walk away. First, remember that God is patient and gracious toward our sin. God is patient and gracious toward our sin. And then I also have, before he comes in judgment, Oh, he'll, he'll come. But he just is more inclined to be gracious and, and, and kind to us than judgmental. That's what we learn in the book of Deuteronomy, right? He says, I'm gracious, I'm patient, I'm long-suffering before I visit the iniquities on the children. I love Romans 2, 4. 
Do not think lightly of the riches, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing or forgetting that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? What a grace. He tells the people over and over and over and over again, consider your way, stop and think about it, take a pause and repent. And they do, and then they stop. And then they do again, and then they stop. And then they do again, and they stop, and they'll do again next week, and then they'll stop. Does that sound like anybody you know? If you're saying, Rick, you're right. Probably you too. Secondly, Misunderstanding holiness and sin has dangerous consequences. Misunderstanding holiness and sin has dangerous consequences. Sin unaddressed will spread and destroy you. Holiness unpursued will never be realized. Theology matters for everything in life. And at the heart of such misunderstanding, really, I think, is a wrong understanding of God himself, projecting who we are and what we're like onto God. It's Psalm 50, verse 21, where God indicts Israel and says, you thought I was just like you. Praise God, he's not just like us. Every anxiety you bear is related to how rightly or wrongly you think about God. Every anxiety you bear is rightly or, or is attached to how rightly or wrongly you think about his word. Every anxiety you bear is related to how rightly or wrongly you think about the truth of the gospel. And something to slip into your heart, one more, a third. God and his promises are sure and certain. God and his promises are sure and certain. And they can alter your motivations and affections. But his promises are rarely seen in this life. Oh, sure, we have the promise of comfort and peace and things that touch our heart, but all the tangible, the tangible, seeable blessings, what did Paul say? We walk here by faith, but one day we will walk by sight. It'll be real and see it then. What a God, what a God. So patient and so gracious and so long-suffering. Spoiler alert for next week. Remember the gospel of Christ, which is so clear in verses 20 to 23 and works perfectly for our week before Christmas. So we'll come back and celebrate that fourth sermon next week.